Paul. Called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has, was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So let's pray for the Lord's blessing on the preaching of His Word. Dear Almighty God, we are Your people. We are thankful that in your providence you have brought us here to hear your word, Lord, but we are helpless to understand it, for it to change our hearts without the blessing of your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we pray right now for, for your blessing. We pray, Lord, that you would make us to understand your word. We pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here who has yet to have their heart turn from stone to flesh to receive Your Word and to put their faith in Christ that You would do that work this morning. So Lord, please anoint Your Word. Give it power. And make us to grow in our appreciation for, our adoration for, and our love for Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Paul begins with unity. It's a subject that we would do well to pay attention to. A study published in 2001 identified over 33,000 Christian denominations. Some 29,000 of that number are Protestant Christian denominations. That number has no doubt grown even larger in the years since. In the most recent controversy in the OPC on republication, you may be aware that two churches opted to break fellowship with our own denomination. We also have cliques. 
and other personal and marriage conflicts within our own churches. Perhaps you experienced some of your own on the way here to church. And so the point is, we're not immune to disunity. Unity is a problem for the contemporary church and for us just as well as it was for the ancient church. Our problem is that we've gotten quite comfortable with it. We've gotten used to a a divided church. It's just the way that it is. And so Paul instructs us in three ways here. First, the kind of unity that we should have. Second, the reason we should have it. And third, the solution for our lack of it. So let's look at these in turn. First, the kind of unity that we should have. Verse 10 says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. This is inescapably strong language. It's not the kind of superficial unity that we tend to to urge on our children, right? With the words, why can't you guys can't just get along? There, we're looking for the, word, the, the noise to stop. But Paul isn't satisfied with that. He's not satisfied with just getting along or fake unity, nor the mere appearance of it, because he must have the real thing. That's, that's the sense of the passion that stands behind this. And maybe you can understand the difference between the two when you've been squabbling in the car on the way to church. Maybe even one last outburst escapes because you're, you're late and it's been a frustrating time getting everyone organized to leave the house. But as you walk towards those doors, what happens? As you walk towards those doors, some, some unity takes over, or at least the appearance of it. We must not allow others to see our disunity. For the sake of our name, we appear, we, we assume the appearance of peace and harmony and unity. But it's only skim deep, and Paul says no. Why, he says, all of you agree. All of you agree. Just think about what that means. It means no outliers, no dissenting opinions, no minority reports, but comprehensive, universal agreement, unanimity. And so he clarifies himself as if that were necessary with these words, let there be no divisions among you. Now this obviously covers those hard-line black and white divisions between denominations that we see today, but he's more specifically talking about the thin line, those, those grayer divisions that happen within churches. See, the problems in Corinth aren't, aren't outside, but inside the church. It's that lower level of intra-church partisanship and cliquishness that is the specific problem that Paul is addressing. And so he says, be, or better, become united. The Greek verb here connotes the idea of repair. The concept of restoring something to its right condition. It's a word that's also used for mending nets. It means as a basic presupposition that disunity between Christians is wrong. It's not supposed to be that way. It's it's broken like a broken net. And so he says, be repaired or be restored to the right thing. 
which as he explains it here, is to be united. We have the same mind and the same judgment. Again, it's super strong. We might even say that it's extreme. We might be tempted to say to Paul, well, that's a, that's a nice thing to shoot for. It's an ideal vision that's good, but it's hardly realistic. Yet Paul doesn't, doesn't seem to feel that way. He doesn't say, shoot for this. Christian unity is, is much bigger than an ideal for Paul, and so why? Well, in verse 11 he says, It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Because they're quarreling means they're not merely struggling to get along as a result of some kind of disharmony or or poor chemistry, but there's something sinful in their disunity. That's the sense of the Greek word for quarreling. It's used elsewhere, Paul by himself, in 1 Corinthians and Galatians alongside very serious sins. In Galatians he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, and strife, which is the same word that's used here for quarreling. The point is there's nothing morally neutral about this disunity. It's not just a consequence of living in a fallen world with fallen people. It's not just not the way it's supposed to be, but it's sinful. Our disunity is evidence of the works of the flesh, our pride, our self-centeredness. And that's what Paul is narrowing in on here. In verse 12, as he explains it, he says, what I mean, Paul says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So as one commentator notes really helpfully here, the most frequently used word in this verse is I. It's a stark contrast to the frequent use of the names and titles of Christ in all of verses 1 through 10. The focus in the Corinthian congregation has shifted from Christ to me. And this is the root of the problem. In other words, their disunity, and very often ours as well, springs out of a shift from Christ-centeredness to self-centeredness. Underneath most of our quarreling and partisanship is pride. The reason I follow one or I follow the other is because I feel like I'm better than those others are. But even so, you have to ask the question, why is a little disunity such such a big deal? Can't can't brothers and sisters in Christ, and we could add here Christian couples, can't we just agree to disagree sometimes? Isn't that satisfactory? Isn't there any place for tolerance? Isn't, isn't tolerance the solution to disunity today? Disagreement? Let's just tolerate one another. So is there a place for that? Well, there is a place for that. Paul has great concern for the weaker brother for extending grace, for exercising a love that covers a multitude of sins. But he's also concerned that we not miss what is at stake in our disunity. Point two, the reason for unity. In verse 13, Paul responds with can only seem to be some degree of anger or at least exasperation. 
Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? You can hear the frustration. But the answer to all of these questions is an instinctive no, but the Corinthians, they already know that. And you already know that. Paul's point isn't to teach them something that they don't know, but that they're partisan expressions. I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or whatever. They don't support the unity of Christ, the singular crucifixion of Christ, and the single body of Christ that they've been baptized into. And therefore, what's at stake in the unity of the church is the honor of Christ, is who Christ is, and what Christ has done. And that makes unity a huge deal. That's why Paul appeals to them with this extraordinarily long reference to the Lord in verse 10. He says, By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not just by by Jesus, not by just Christ, but, but by all of them. That's to say, if it's not for me, if not for me, be united on His account, by His authority, for His sake, for His name what Jesus desired too. You remember that prayer in John 17. Look at just how what Jesus prays overlaps with Paul's concerns here. Jesus pleads with His Father. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their Word, that they may all be one. In other words, that the whole church across all space, culture, and time may be united. And he continues, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And so you see, at stake in our unity is the honor of Christ and the power and the credibility and the efficacy of the Gospel. And why? Well, because the Scriptures teach us that something supernatural happens when we respond to Christ. Remember how Jesus explained it to Nicodemus. Remember at night he's afraid. And so he goes to Jesus and he asks, what what are you talking about? And Jesus explains there that that putting our faith in Christ doesn't just cause some kind of um, mental, intellectual paradigm shift, but it causes us to the dismay and utter bewilderment of Nicodemus to be born again. To be born again. And Nicodemus said, do I go back into my mother's womb? How, how is this possible? As Paul explains it elsewhere, our resting in Christ has transferred us from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of light. From death to life. Our receiving of the Gospel has given us a new identity. It has made us a new creation. This is all the language that the, the Bible uses. And so we are no longer who we once were. The old man is dead, and we are now, our life, hid with Christ. But as a result of that, we are now a people that is united to Christ. And by virtue of that, united to one another. 
And so we find that image over and over. We are living stones of a single temple for our God. We are adopted brothers and sisters into the single unified family of God. That's particularly here. Paul uses the word brother in this letter 39 times. He sees us as family members in a united family. And that means our disunity says something. It questions the very truth and efficacy of the Gospel itself. It raises the question of have you really had that supernatural conversion experience in which you are made new? You are a new creation. You are no longer dead, but you're alive. And you are no longer your own, but you are united to Christ. You know, it's one of the chief reasons that non-Christians reject Christianity. And so it begs the question, what are we doing in our disunity? If unity is that important... Then, then what is so important to us that we would just let that go? You see, we know the answer to this. We have reasons for our disunity. We had reasons for our arguing this morning or this past week or our dissension or whatever it is. Unity between sinners is hard. You are all different. And when we get right down to it, those differences... They're more important to us than what would unite us. In other words, the reason for our disunity is, is the old man in us still reigns. And so how do we get over this? How do we overcome what divides us? Do we just figure out how to agree on an ever-decreasing and ambiguous list of ideas? Do we, do we water it down? Or do we ignore our differences? I, we pretend to be united? Well, the church has tried all of these. I'm sure you have as well. And Paul has very clearly ruled them out because the Gospel demands something more. It demands a real, of the same mind, opinion, judgment kind of unity. And so what's the answer? Point three, the solution to our disunity. Paul points this up in the last verse of our passage. Verse 17, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the Gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And so what's going on here? Well, it's not through the act of baptism, nor the rhetorical skill or pragmatic wisdom of an orator, but the preaching of the Gospel that we have been united to Christ. And verse 9, called into the fellowship of His Son. That's the key here. It's through the preaching of the Gospel, the, the good news that Christ died and was raised as an atoning sacrifice to reconcile sinners to God. That is the source of our original union with Christ and His body and likewise the means to repair unity in that body. The Gospel is the source and the solution for our unity. And why? Well, again, because... The preaching of the Gospel, which is Christ, and a reception of it, who is Christ, does something. As Paul will tell us in the very next verse, it is the power of God for salvation. It's why Paul expounds on many of the benefits of the Gospel in the passage directly before ours. In verse 4 he says, 
He reminds the Corinthians that they have received the grace of God in Christ, that they have been enriched in Him, meaning Christ, in all speech and all knowledge, that they have had the testimony about Christ, the powerful effect of the Gospel confirmed among them, and that as a result of all that grace extended to them in Christ, well, that they are not lacking in any spiritual gift. And so, what's the theme of all that? Well, it's grace. What we have and who we are, it's not because of anything that we've done. It's not because of any merit that we contribute. But it is His grace extended to us in the Gospel of Christ. And so then, what's our problem? Well, is Christ's gracious sacrifice for our sins not imbued us with sufficient humility to love and respect a brother who has likewise had his sins covered by the grace of Christ. Raises one of these questions like, who do we think we are? You ever had that conversation with a son or daughter? A friend? Disunity springs from a pride that is out of all accord with the Gospel of grace. And yet, there's a cure See, as we grasp that grace that is extended to us in the Gospel, our pride in the old man will be increasingly replaced with humility and the new man. And as that happens, love and respect for our brother, unity with Christ and with them, it happens quite naturally. We, we, we are released from self-pity. We are released from our arrogance, our pride, our independence. But in our awareness of the grace that has been extended to us in Christ. We are united fully. We are made aware more fully of that dependence absolutely, completely, at all times that we must have with Christ. And humbly, then, we love Christ and we love our neighbor who has likewise experienced the same. And so what we need, what we need is more of the Gospel of Christ. We need more preaching of the Gospel of Christ. We need more transformation by the Gospel of Christ. This is how to mend the disunity in the body of Christ. And so what do we take away from this? Well, we should have an increasing discomfort with disunity. Here's a question to ask yourself. Has the Gospel shaped your attitude towards disunity? Has the Gospel shaped your attitude Towards disunity. You see, as it has for Paul, one thing is clear from this passage that he is, is not comfortable with disunity. And just think about that. Think about where that's coming from. You remember, Paul before his conversion was the Jewish, sorry, Paul before his conversion was anti Christian and anti Gentile. He's a, a militant agent for division in the church for disunity but but after his conversion he becomes the jewish missionary to the gentiles for christianity i.e he is an agent a militant agent for unity it's a radical change and so he would not be impressed by the modern spectrum of our denominationalism our factionalism our cliqueism the shallow strangerliness of our Christian relationships, our conflict-ridden roommate-style marriages. 
He was horrified by the Corinthians, I follow this or that. How much more the distaste that Christians harbor towards one another. And so how about you? Is this... Is the disunity or the lack of depth in your Christian relationships a horrifying sight to you? Have you become comfortable with a superficial peace? What is it in your life that keeps you from seeking reconciliation or deeper fellowship with another brother and sister? One more question. Do you desire to be perfectly one? You know, it's interesting. Jesus desires to be perfectly one with you and the person sitting next to you. Perfectly one. 100% agreement. 100% of one mind. And yet he's the, he's the only one that really has sufficient grounds to say, I don't want to be united with those people. And so if that's the case of Christ with you and with your neighbor, then, then what is your hang-up? Are you that special or are they that inferior? Aren't we all sinners called by God and saved into the single fellowship of His Son? Are you too good for the fellowship of Christ or are they not good enough for that fellowship? You see, the Gospel compels us because of Christ to fight for unity. And Paul, by the name of Christ, appeals to us to fight for unity in the church of God. And so if you're a Christian today, I mean a real Christian, you've been born again, you've been brought from death to life, you've been united to Christ, where have you grown complacent? For the sake of Christ and by the power of the Gospel, fight for real, deep, genuine unity in the body of Christ. For a single church, for the end of cliques, for a unified body, and if you're married, for a one-flesh kind of marriage. Don't allow yourself to be comfortable with the status quo. Because the status quo is broken because of sin. Just stand up like Paul, and let's make use of the cure. Let's proclaim the good news of Christ, both inside these walls as well as outside. Because it is the means of God to unite His saints and one another to Christ. As Paul urged the uh, Christians in Ephesus, he said, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And then listen to these words, eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And why? Well, because there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called into one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And that means this is a unity that is worth fighting for. Amen? Let's pray.